0: Welcome to Grating the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Owned by the same family for its first 200 years, then purchased by star architect Cass Gilbert in 1907 for his summer home, the Keeler Tavern was there when the American Revolution's Battle of Ridgefield happened. It has a cannonball embedded in the facade to prove it. New York City architect Cass Gilbert, designer of early skyscrapers like the Woolworth building, kept all of the home's colonial charm and added to it new research is enhancing the museum's ability to tell women's and african-american history in programming for adults and children the pandemic pushed many museums to reach out to their audiences using new technologies hear more about how the keeler tavern museum and history center's dynamic staff is telling their story and finding new audiences in 2020 with architectural historian Mary Donahue, coming up now on Crating the Nutmeg.
1: Hi, this is Mary Donahue. Like many of you, I've been looking for new places to visit. So, when I read that the Keeler Tavern Museum and History Center in Ridgefield had a free 11 stop outdoor self guided walking tour called the Gilberts in the Garden, I took a drive. Cass Gilbert, a superstar society architect in New York City, bought the historic Keeler Tavern in 1907 for his summer home in the country. Gilbert is one of my favorite architects, and he had a big impact on Connecticut's architecture. More about that later. I was able to sit in the beautiful walled garden he built. But there's more to the Keeler Tavern Museum than just a pretty place. Today, we'll hear more about how they tell the story of 300 years worth of history, serve as a window to nationally significant events like the American Revolution, the Civil War home front, and what's sometimes called hard history, stories that teach the reality of slavery and racism in Connecticut. We'll also hear how the museum had to pivot successfully to online experiences during 2020, something museums across the world have had to do. Today, my guests are Hilde Grab, Executive Director, Catherine Prescott, Chief Curator, and Melissa Houston, Educational Director for the Keeler Tavern Museum. Welcome to the podcast. So Hilde, why don't you tell us a little bit about the museum?
2: The Keeler Tavern Museum and History Center goes back to 1708 and the settlement of Bridgefield. It was lot number two out of twenty-five lots, and what has been developed over two hundred and fifty years, actually, as a, a as a lived history place. It was turned into a museum in nineteen sixty-six, and ever since then, we have interpreted the history of the site. We have. Really exciting history that that dates back from the colonial days up through the American Revolution, all the 19th century, and then, as Mary said, her favorite, the Cass Gilbert era, which goes until we sort of tell it up until around World War II when Cass Gilbert and Julia Gilbert lived here full-time, actually. It is a four-acre site. We just did a capital campaign a couple of years ago to reunite the two properties at 132 and 152 Main Street, they had been sold off or separated in 1958. So it's really exciting because we bought back a a historically significant building that Julia Gilbert had built in uh, as a memorial for Cass and to house all his very vast collection of papers. However, he was such a prolific architect and writer that currently the New York Historical Society houses all his papers. So we, we've we transformed our site to be in a regional history center because we believe that the stories that we tell here, the history is really a window to many, many national key events within our, um, the American experience. And that's how we want to position ourselves with a very strong education program. Our school programs really drive a lot of our interpretation. And maybe, Mary, later on, we'll talk a little more about you know, our current um, um, push for a renewed interpretation of the science history. So, Catherine, you can, give, you can fill in all the gaps in terms of... <laughs> the history that happened here so yeah as
3: Hilde said we have uh, about 300 years over 300 years of history here at our site Uh, the first settlers here in Ridgefield divided up the land and this property came into the hands of Benjamin Hoyt who was an Amazing character in himself. He was born in Deerfield, Massachusetts, and survived, he was the only member of his family to survive the Deerfield Massacre. And so when he came to Ridgefield, he built the first structure on our, our property. And then the property actually stayed in the family through up to the 20th century uh, when it was sold to Cass Gilbert in 1907. So this one family, the Hoyt. Keeler-Rezegui family, as we call it, owned this property and experienced a lot of the significant events in American history. And so we are very lucky in that all of this history was preserved in documents and objects that we have here in our museum's collection. So we can tell the story of the American Revolution. The Battle of Ridgefield was the only inland uh, military engagement in the state of Connecticut during uh, the American Revolution and the Keeler Tavern was a central part of that that battle of that engagement, and we have the cannonball in the wall, the famous cannonball, to prove it. So Timothy and Esther Keeler, who were the owners and operators of the Keeler Tavern at that time, we tell their story and uh, the story of their family and what it was like to live in Ridgefield at the time of the American Revolution. Uh, Then we move on to their daughter and their granddaughter, um, Anna Rezegui and Anna Marie Rezegui, who inherited the the property and operated it as a hotel during the Civil War years. And Anna Marie actually, she was a great diarist and wrote these amazing journals that detail her experience and the experience here in Ridgefield during the Civil War years. Um, So we're very lucky to have those. And then Anna Marie finally sold the property to Cass Gilbert in 1907. And so we're able to tell the story of the early 20th century here in Ridgefield, when the town became a a place where a lot of New York's uh, wealthy residents, New York City's wealthy residents, came up for the summer. And you have some very big names, publishers and diplomats and people like that, the highest levels of society coming to Ridgefield. So we're able to tell that story as well as the story of uh, the immigrants, the Italian immigrants who came uh, at the same time as those wealthy New Yorkers. So that's kind of a rough overview of the 300 years of history that we can tell here. So it's uh, quite a significant story um, that we're able to tell about American history.
1: Now, I know that the American Revolution history, for example, has been really highly celebrated for decades, if not centuries, in Connecticut. But what about some of those more marginalized stories that haven't been told yet, the so-called hard history stories?
2: So, and, and then I'll pass it on to, to Melissa as Education Director, because as I mentioned before, we have... Uh, our education programs in terms of interpreting our, our our history here are really at the forefront. I mean, we always seem to be using our, our education school programs to go out there and develop new programs that are relevant to contemporary issues. So our site has black history um, that up to now has really not been told. Very authentically, or truthfully, or comprehensively. So, so we so we actually commissioned um, two scholars to research and write a new site history, right? And with the understanding that. The interpretation up to now has primarily been through a white lens. And we have lived experiences here by actually Phyllis Dubois, who lived spent most of her life um, living here at what was called the Brzezegui Hotel in the 19th century. So this was before, during, and after the Civil War. So these are key periods in our nation's history, right? And then also, we actually have in our collections, and we just found this, found it, literally found it eight years ago in our collection. It's a receipt where Esther Kellogg, so this is the wife of Timothy Keeler in 1769, she actually Mm -hmm. purchased a little black baby. Enslaved baby girl, we have the receipt it has her signature on it, and she paid a certain amount you know for it so we have and Melissa again, she will talk to it up to now, we never really knew how to what to do with the receipt you know how can we right so Melissa started she brought in um, an interpreter who interprets Cheney McKnight, she interprets slavery and, and black history, and we started working with her and and thus we started using or in including black history in our school programs so right now currently just coming back to a more of an institutional level we are funding this site history and then that will lead to a new interpretive plan site-wide for you know all 300 years here and and we have in in august we put on it's also rather a long story but mary we we put on a play called sisters so it's based on the relationship of the black and the white woman who lived here at the Resigui Hotel in the 19th century and what sort of relationship they had and how it was affected due to the color of their skin. That was a very different, you know, experience, right? So the play is an, uses art, you know, that's nice, it's the intersection of art and history to really provide contemporary narrative and dialogue and a space where people can come and talk about it and think. So, now overlay pandemic to all of this. So on August 30th, we actually did here in the garden house, which is in in the center of our campus, a big open space. We actually put on a live performance with a very reduced live audience. And so we had about 15 people live audience in a space that normally takes 90 people. There were only two actors and there were you know social distance. And then we had over 90 people as a virtual audience. So we did, that was the first time we did the combo live and live stream. And then we also did a live zoom talk on top of all of that. So we were technically, it was really great. I mean, we brought in a videographer to deal, you know, with all that. We had an international audience and it was a really a very powerful moment for us as an institution, as a history museum, to really be part of, you know, the national narrative that is so contemporary and so timely, you know. So that's where, you know, we want to be part of, we want to be, um, take an active stand in really driving conversations to understanding that, you know, the way history gets told and the way it gets interpreted and all the lives that up to now have really not been told, you know, in a comprehensive way. So, Melissa, maybe you can speak more from the, our educational programming, how we, how we have been, you know, dealing with this over the past years.
1: Let me just ask you a quick question, Hilde. So, For this play, which sounds like it tells a great story of both women's history as well as black and white women's history,
2: how did you go about that? Did you find a playwright to put that together? So we had actually, this, this is also something that started two years ago in 2017. Actually, let me back up to 2013. Um, yeah, well, that's how back it goes, the relationship with, you know, with Joanne Hudson, who's a local playwright here in Ridgefield. And, you know, she and I had had conversations and she said, Hilde, I would love to do a play based on the strong women's stories that you have here at the museum. So back in 2013, she actually wrote a play for us that involved all the female characters, protagonists here. It was called Women in the Shadow. And then fast forward to 2017, and she had this idea to write a play based, she always was fascinated by Phyllis Dubois, the black woman and Anna Marie Rezegui, the white woman. So she said, Hilde, I would love to do a play based on this relationship and would you be okay with it? And sure, I'm okay with it, (laughs) right? So then she actually went out and she found a black playwright on a Facebook playwright um, page. And they never met in person. So over Skype, they actually wrote this play, which in itself, from a creative you know, standpoint, is fascinating too, right? And then in 2018, then Melissa overlaid it with a school program. We used that as the foundation for a middle school program. And then Melissa developed a program that basically deals, We call, now we're calling it race and privilege in 19th century um, that you know expounds upon that. And that was a very successful program back in 2018. Luckily at the time we took a video just for archival purposes, right? Not knowing that a pandemic was gonna come sooner. So this year we teed up again to do this with a live performance. Well, then COVID hit, so we had to scramble and use, because initially, you know, nobody knew what they were going to do. We had pivoted all our school programs immediately, you know, to, I mean, Melissa and the team, we did a great job moving everything to online. So we ended up using this, the video of, you know, the the archival video, which was of rather poor quality, right? Melissa wasn't really the best yeah. quality. and um, And then we did a, a that, that was part of the school program, and then it had a live a virtual live um component where melissa that's a photo that I sent you where Melissa was actually in the museum and she interacted live with um with the students one of our first um, live remote you know school programs so it's just for tourists how everything really you know the, we had this play we had the school program, and we could react right away in when this really became you know part of our national conversation so
1: Absolutely, as as well as being able to pivot quickly during the pandemic. Melissa, how would you say uh, students are reacting to these new programs, school programs that tell this bigger story?
4: Oh, I think by and large, students are engaged with it because a lot of times we find conversations around hard history just aren't happening in the home or in the classroom. And part of that, I think, is parents and teachers don't necessarily have the opportunity to go in depth on these hard history topics and become comfortable enough with them to speak with authority on them. And museums, when that is a part of their history, it's part of their responsibility to know that history. So when we started integrating the discussion of slavery in Connecticut into our school programs, we started with an interpreter who that was her expertise. That's Cheney's expertise. And so we weren't trying to do it. We were trying to learn from her. And then we had all of our docents and staff. We went through various trainings with um, Harriet Beecher Stowhouse and then with Cheney. Um, and it's been three years of working on this. And so we've created, I think, a space and a conversation in our programs where students feel safe to engage with these hard topics that can be controversial or challenging. Uh, we had with SISTERS, Hilde mentioned there's a talk back at the end of SISTERS. So the school program for sisters, the play, we had the students asking, they were able to dialogue with the actors and the playwright about the play. And they asked some really amazing, profound questions, Um, not just like, oh, why was she wearing that costume or what does this prop have to do with the play? But they were asking really pointed questions. You know, Why are race relations as contested as they are today when we've been talking about this for hundreds of years? When this has been an issue for over 100 years, how come it's still an issue? Um, kids asked, you know, we have, the play does include black actors, and they asked them, when did you know you were black? You know, they asked questions that I don't think they would be comfortable asking their teacher. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be powerful in a museum, is that you're a space outside of the house, you're a space outside of the classroom, you're a new voice, and you have an opportunity to present a hard, important, very important history to students in a way that they can engage with it. And I think that really happened, you know, even with our fourth grade students, when um, Cheney was a part of the program, she would talk to them about how slavery kind of came to Connecticut broadly, very broad, just kind of setting a baseline, telling the kids, you know, these are the different regions in Africa they came from, these are the languages spoken, the skill sets they had to show them that people coming from the continent of Africa, didn't come empty handed or without knowledge. They were all skilled laborers. They had families, they had belief systems, they had governments, they had everything we had. So we've gotten more questions and I would say pushback. We've gotten a lot of curiosity, which I think is great. I think if kids have a space where they can ask their questions and not be afraid of what mom's gonna say or what the teacher's gonna say, I think that's a powerful opportunity for Mm museums. And I think that spending the time to find a consultant who this is their expertise to have them set the bar for you and to set a course for you in terms of who needs to be trained what they need to be considering what your interpretation needs to be looking at you know our site interpretation this history that we're um having done that hilde mentioned you know that was one thing that cheney when she was consulting with us she said what do you know And we had to be honest and be like, well, we don't really know much other than what we've been able to find in census records and our own records. You know, nobody's had the time. We all haven't had the time to sit down and do the actual research. And now we have that. So I just am so excited to have that because I think about how many more stories there are to tell and how much more powerful our programs will become because we know what's there.
1: More with my guests after this message. The American suffrage movement didn't just happen in Hartford, New York City, and Washington, D.C. It happened on a grassroots level across the nation. Marking the centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, the Wilton Historical Society presents a permanent online exhibit called Citizens at Last, Hannah Ambler, Grace Schnick, and the Vote. Citizens at Last explores objects, images, texts, historic costumes, vignettes, and music to illustrate the activities and contributions of Wilton suffragists, Hannah Ambler and Grace Schnick. Narrated videos place Wilton's story in the state and national context. Like so many working at the local level across the country, these women contributed to the eventual success of the quest for suffrage. The exhibition Citizens at Last can be seen and heard on the website at wiltonhistorical.org. So this is a fabulous site and it's got many layers of architectural history. Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about what visitors will see when they're there?
3: Uh, Absolutely. So this site was continuously developed since Benjamin Hoyt built the first one room homestead uh, in 1713. So the site started as a one room homestead and was steadily expanded into a fairly large family home in colonial America. And for many years that was pretty much the only building on the site that still remains is the main tavern building, the, the museum as we call it, um, which is where the, the tour of the historic house takes place in the tavern building. And then we believe there was you know a barn, um, stables, the general farm, you know, small family farm building, outbuildings throughout the 18th and 19th century. But when Cass Gilbert purchased the property in 1907, he set about making it truly a, an estate, right? He uh, expanded the main house, but he was very interested in preserving the history. That's why he bought the property. So he made sure to keep the original 18th century sections of the house, and he just added on to the back. So you'll see when you visit the site, there's sort of a, I like to call it the caboose, um, but there's an L off the back of the 18th century house that was added by Cass Gilbert. And we officially call it the Cass Gilbert wing.
1: So, as I mentioned before, Cass Gilbert is one of my favorite architects. He was born in 1859 and lived till 1934. He was an early proponent of skyscrapers, and his work includes the Woolworth Building, the United States Supreme Court Building, the state capitals of Minnesota, Arkansas, and Virginia, and the St. Louis Art Museum and Public Library. His public buildings in the Beaux-Arts style are said to reflect the optimistic American sense that our nation was heir to Greek democracy, Roman law, and Renaissance humanism. Gilbert was a skyscraper pioneer. When he designed the Woolworth Building, he moved into unproven ground. Although he was certainly aware of the groundbreaking work done by Chicago architects on skyscrapers, and once apparently discussed merging firms with the legendary Daniel Burnham. And his technique of cladding a steel frame became the model for decades. In Connecticut, he designed the New Haven Free Public Library. But most of all, or more visible, is the headquarters of the Chase Company in Waterbury. These buildings form part of the Waterbury Municipal Center Complex, a unique concentration of Gilbert's architecture comprising the Waterbury City Hall, the Chase Bank building, and the Chase Company headquarters, Chase's house, a dispensary, and Lincoln House, a headquarters building for the city's charities. And in Hartford in 1918, he designed the G. Fox department store.
3: And then Gilbert, uh, added a number of outbuildings. So he built a carriage barn at the base of the driveway, which originally housed his horse and carriage, and carriage driver. Um, the carriage driver lived on the second floor of the barn. Uh, but then shortly after that, he got rid of the carriage and purchased an automobile, a bright yellow Pierce Arrow, so the Car of Kings, and uh, that's where, where that the carriage barn turned into a, into a garage. He also added the garden house. So his wife, Julia, loved to entertain. And like any 18th century house, the rooms in the main building are very small. Um, you can't really entertain very well there. So she built this beautiful garden house um, that can host you know, up to 100 people, wide open ballroom. And that overlooks a walled garden Uh, that Gilbert designed Um, and I'm actually very excited we found we rediscovered in our archives his blueprints for the walled garden and it includes detailed records of the types of plants and the color of flowers he wanted in every square foot of the garden you know he planned it all meticulously it was based on a garden he and Julia had seen in Charleston South Carolina so that was the main entertainment space And then uh, the most recent addition to our campus is our visitor center, which, as Hilde mentioned in the beginning, that we recently purchased the property back. It had been split off in the 1950s and we were able to reacquire it. And it's a a brick Georgian style building um, that was designed by Cass Gilbert Jr. as a memorial library for his father, though it was never used as as a library. Um, And it's now our visitor center.
1: Cass Gilbert had so many influential clients nationwide. He's one of those architects that really has works throughout the country, including Washington, D.C. with the Supreme Court building. But he must have done a lot of entertaining. He builds the Waterbury buildings in downtown Waterbury for the Chase family, for example. It seems like the house would have been used to really schmooze with potential clients and to entertain clients and to entertain people up from New York. Do you have photos of that kind of thing or information?
3: Uh, Yeah, we do actually. We do know that Cass and Julia love to entertain. And they were in this sort of intersection of society, which is really interesting because he had all these wealthy clients. He schmoozed with the upper echelon. Um, We know he was mentioned in a, he and Julia were mentioned in a New York Times article that they attended this fantastic ball thrown by Louis Comfort Tiffany, um, (laughs) like an Egyptian gala that had like 600 of the, you know, New York's upper class. Um, It was this costume ball. And we actually have the costume that Cass wore to that gala. And it's described in in the article. Um, So we know he was associating with that kind of society, but he was also an artist. And he worked with a lot of famous artists uh, of the time. Um, Edwin Blashfield, Frederick Remington, Daniel Chester French, so all of these big names of the early 20th century, and we know they came to visit him here. Um, Julia, we have one of Julia's diaries. She wasn't the most regular of journalists, you know, diarists, but she did record a a small weekend get-together of Cass and some of his artist friends here at At the keeler tavern um, what they called the cannonball house um, at the time and it sounded like it was fun they had dinner parties and they had you know they invited this cellist from new york to come play for them and they told jokes and they had drinks on the porch um so it sounded like a lot of fun they sounded like really fun people who knew how to live a good life
4: part of julia Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Julia also use the garden house, because we do this in our school programs, to send off doughboys for World War One? So she would host families and soldiers who are going off to war and have a grand send-off for them in the garden house, correct?
3: Yes, yes she did. Um, so both the whole Gilbert family was very involved in World War I war effort um, and Julia did do these and this is one of the few things she recorded in her diary. Um, was about these send offs in the garden house. So every time a Ridgefield boy was sent off to the front, uh, she welcomed their friends and family for a, a tea. And it was a very elaborate ceremony. She played the piano and there was flags and marching and <laughs> things like that. So I um, know so that she would do that.
2: And Mary, probably the highlight of the Gilbert social life was when they were received in England at the court of um, St James in 1926, right, Catherine? Yes. It was 1926, and we have this beautiful gown that um, uh, Julia wore uh, for the, the the court reception when she was presented, you know, to the King and Queen. And that's part. Of, that's probably one of our in our textile collection, Catherine. Right? That's probably one of. It's probably the gem of of our of our collection, right? Maybe you can say a few things. Yeah,
3: sure. Um, So we are very lucky that we do have a lot of uh, the Gilbert's clothes in our textile collection, Um, but definitely the gem of that collection is this gown that was, you know, it's a bespoke, custom-made Reveille gown from London. She had it commissioned in London for her presentation to the King and Queen of England. And this was, as foreigners, this was very rare. You know, most Americans are not going to be presented to the King and Queen. So it's this beautiful kind of ivory peach silk gown with diamonds and jewels. And it's very mid 1920s, so very um, boxy and straight, but it's gorgeous. And we were lucky enough to be able to have it restored and preserved uh, a couple years ago, and so we are able to put it on display, and as part of the presentation, they also got these beautiful photographs taken, so we're, when the dress is not on display, we're able to show this, this large photograph, so that oh. people can see it.
1: There's a large object, which is not in the garden, but is actually down the street from the museum, that has- <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that big object.
3: Yeah, so uh, this, this large object is a fountain um, that was designed and gifted to the town of Ridgefield by Kath Gilbert. And it's a really fun story, I think, <laughs> because um, the, around 1914-1915, the, the town of Ridgefield decided they were going to put in a watering trough for horses. Uh, right at the corner of Main Street and where Route 35 comes in from New York State. And Cass Gilbert, it's right right outside the front door of, of the house. So Cass Gilbert didn't want all these horses hanging around in front of his summer estate, bringing all their mess and smells and all that. So he went to the fathers of the town and said, look, I will design this fountain for you and and give it to the town. And they said, of course, absolutely. You know, famous architect Cass Gilbert wants to give us something. So he does, it goes in and it causes a little bit of a disturbance because the regular citizens of the town still have their horses. They still need to water them somewhere. And so in the town records, everything just goes silent (laughs) about it. There's one newspaper, like, letter to the editor from one of the other summer people um, saying, you know, thank you, Cass Gilbert, for this wonderful fountain. But otherwise, it's just kind of silent. Nobody really references this fountain that has appeared on Main Street. And it wasn't until 2016, uh, the 100th anniversary of the installation of the fountain, that it was officially, officially casco but was officially thanked by our first selectman for, for gifting us
2: this fountain.
1: Oh. Boy, that is such a New England story, isn't
2: it? <laughs> 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 um, M- Mary, we call it self-serving altruism, so. Yeah,
1: exactly, <laughs> exactly. Capital well, politics
2: yeah. all the time, yes.
1: So, just to, just to wrap up, I want to certainly recommend that people go and do the walk, the 11 stop walk around the gardens. And if you get there, while the flowers are still out. It's terrific, but it's just a beautiful walk anyway. But what are the kind of online resources do you have for both visitors or people interested in the buildings as well as for students?
2: Right, so let me just as a quick overview. So um, our we have a four acre campus, so anybody can always come anytime to enjoy our outdoor space. It's really, yes. it's beautiful. The gardens are beautiful yeah. and, and it's really, it, it's just a nice way Uh, It's a nice place to come and relax and, you know, and spend some good time. So in October, and Catherine, you can speak to that a little more in detail, October is our Hands-on History Month. So traditionally, this is an award-winning exhibit that features our, primarily our tools collection, 18th, 19th century. And Catherine has done it as chief um, um, curator. Um, She's done a terrific job of creating always it's, it's a different theme every time we put on this special exhibition so so this this year it is it takes a village and it uses our historic maps historic late ledgers and day books and talks about all the different trades so now with COVID we decided that um to create a a virtual exhibit instead of a physical exhibit, but in the carriage barn, somewhat indoor, outdoor with timed entries. So so there's gonna be certain featured trades in the carriage barn that you can come and see, and then there are gonna be outdoor family demonstrations. So overall, generally speaking, we're not gonna do anything indoors starting November. So, Kathleen, why don't you talk a little bit about um, what we're gonna be doing for Hands On History virtual.
3: Yeah. So uh, Hands-On History, this will be our fifth year um, doing Hands-On History. And it does, as Hilde said, it highlights our tool, our barn tool collection. Um, So this year I've taken the exhibition and I've turned it into a virtual exhibition using um, story maps, which is a mapping global um, or GIS kind of it's a, a GIS software that allows you to create these narrative place based stories. Um, so the exhibit is designed as a walk down 19th century main street. So I'm able to really keep that same idea, but turn it virtual. And then we will have some of the exhibit up in the carriage barn, featured the, uh, featured trades, um, that reflect some of the demonstrators that we will be having here such as uh, the blacksmiths will have some blacksmiths blacksmith reenactors uh, coming to the site so people can come and see that and learn about blacksmithing and then check out some of the tools in the barn so that's how we're kind of doing a hybrid and as interactive as we can get in this situation.
2: do you want to have the last word or Uh, Maybe if we just can speak one more, one more thing about Hands on History is, um, so we always use Hands on History to have a STEM component for our school programs. So, Melissa, do you just want to say a few last lines and then I can close out?
4: Sure. For our virtual offerings this year for school programs, a lot of the programs that were very popular for students we've been able to do online just like Hands on History. And we do within our educational programs try to have not just the history, just the facts and figures, but we also try to incorporate skills into all of our programs. So for sisters, it was historiography. What is the history and how has it been told over time? We do object-based learning with students and artifact inquiry for the lower grade levels, map skills, and for hands-on history, for that exhibit, we really do STEM and STEAM. So with um, It Takes a Village, previously we've done a lot with ledgers. So getting students to understand Daybooks books and ledgers, how everyone had to compute things, not with a calculator, not with a computer, but by hand. What does it mean to have a debt versus a credit? Um, and so we have some worksheets and activities that went along with that in the exhibit um, that will some of them will be available online as well. Hilde, you want to close out or you're all set? Um,
2: Let me just mention um, in closing that although the pandemic obviously has wreaked havoc on so many lives and and so many aspects of of our existence, however, the silver lining really has been for us that it has forced us to think outside the box, To using, developing our virtual audiences, which means we go beyond being able to drive here, right, a a geographic, you know, restriction. So now we can actually tap into people and spread, you know, our history and the wonderful stories we tell here beyond beyond the the geographic limitations of, of Connecticut.
1: Thank you so much. I'd like to give the listeners some of the names mentioned in this episode. Cheney McKnight is a historical interpreter who helped the Keeler Tavern interpret history in Connecticut for their school programs. She's at Cheney McKnight from NotYourMama'sHistory.com. And the playwrights for the Sisters play are Joanne Hudson, Reading, Connecticut, and Royal Sherry in Lynchburg, Virginia. Thank you for listening.
0: Thanks for listening. We wish to thank our guests Hilde Grob, Executive Director, Catherine Prescott, Chief Curator, and Melissa Houston, Educational Director from the Keeler Tavern Museum and History Center. Find a photo album for this episode at our website, ctexplore.org. Read more online at ctexplored.org in the article Benedict Arnold and the Battle of Ridgefield. And read about architect Cass Gilbert in our online articles including Glamour and Purpose in New Haven's Union Station, and Seaside, Sun and Sea Harnessed to Fight Tuberculosis. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored, and Engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan.